0: You're talking about groundwater, something not seen, not understood, that is in crisis, that is depleting. We are just bad at even handling the things we see, much less the things we don't see. And so the governance of groundwater has to be one of the toughest policy problems and challenges in the world. What an incredible proportion of the world, 25 30% not realizing all of the dangers, the depletion, the challenges, and so on.
1: Well, folks, it's lucky number 13 here at Let's Talk About Water, episode 13, that is. I'm your host, Jay Famiglietti. Can you believe we've done 13, well, I think, pretty amazing episodes since the start of September. We've learned some things along the way, and we're gonna keep learning today. For our last episode of season two, we have a very special guest. Jeffrey Sachs is a university professor and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, where he directed the Earth Institute from 2002 until 2016. Professor Sachs is president of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network, and he's been an advisor to three UN Secretaries General. He currently serves as an advocate for the Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs, under Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He's authored numerous best-selling books, and his most recent book is The Ages of Globalization, Geography, Technology, and Institutions, which we'll talk about today. Dr. Sachs was twice named as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential World Leaders and was ranked by The Economist, as one of the top three most influential living economists. He and I met recently at a virtual event hosted here at the University of Saskatchewan, after which he graciously agreed to join us on the podcast. I'm so glad that we are able to talk to him today. Jeff, thanks so very much for taking the time to join us.
0: Jay, it's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Let's get right to it. The world is having a seriously tough time right now. Global pandemic, a growing wealth gap, climate change, so many things are not going so well. How do the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, fit into this?
0: The strange thing, Jay, is, as you know very well, is that some things are going astoundingly well, and that is the expansion of knowledge, the capacity of technologies, the ability to solve problems. So we really have a strange situation where our abilities are seemingly boundless. In fact, look at even COVID-19 with vaccines, several of them developed in less than one year. This is unprecedented in vaccine development history. Often vaccines take 10, 15, 20, or sometimes they're not accomplished at all. But science is so strong that we have several effective vaccines in a short period of time and yet the human systems, (laughs) they're not working well at all. Our governments are not functioning properly. They're not looking ahead. They're not understanding the science, either the warnings from science, such as warnings about pandemics, and the solutions that can be mustered. So this is a very peculiar fact of our time. And I very often refer to the expression of One of my gurus, Professor Ed Wilson at Harvard, the great evolutionary biologist, who said something witty and very wise, which is that we have entered the 21st century with our Stone Age emotions, our medieval institutions, and our godlike technologies. So here we are. uh, We are the products of the Pleistocene. Uh, We are an evolved species, yet... At the same time, we have amazing capacities to develop new tools and new solutions. And in the middle of all of that, between our ancient biological heritage and our godlike technologies, we have medieval institutions. We have a U.S. Constitution from 1787. It's creaking along, I would say. It is not exactly in spectacular shape.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the SDGs then. Tell us what the Sustainable Development Goals or the SDGs are.
0: The SDGs are the world's commitments to make a better world. 17 agreed goals, agreed by every government in the United Nations, all 193 countries, in September 2015 to bring the world to a better place with the end of extreme poverty and hunger, with infrastructure for all, and with more climate safety on a path to decarbonization to do all of that by 2030. They're bold. They're important. We've got to get on them.
1: So they provide this governance framework, right? And you, you actually talk about it in the book. How are we doing? Do you feel like we're on track to
0: meet the SDGs? We're way off track. Uh, let me say why I uh, slog away at them. In fact, more than that, I really admire the SDGs. I like goal-based approaches to our policies and our social aspiration. They apply up to the year 2030. We have goals beyond 2030, such as decarbonizing economies so that we stay below the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming, what is regarded as not even safe, but uh, the upper bound that we dare not pass. So this kind of goal setting I find very important for public policy because it can at least potentially orient us to do the right things. And I'm, I'm very much a child of the 60s and a child of President Kennedy's call in May 1961, so we're at the 60th anniversary of that, uh, where he said, I believe this country should adopt the goal of, before this decade is out of sending a man to the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And I love that idea that the president said, Let's do something really big, really hard, set a time bound before the end of the decade. In Kennedy's time, eight years, they were going to complete this moonshot. They did it. So we know what NASA can do. You know what NASA can do. You've been working with NASA for years on satellites to precisely measure the Earth. And these are within our capacity. So the long and the short of it is the SDGs are worthy goals. But, oh, try to get the attention of governments to achieve them. We had four years of Trump. I try not to remember that, but it's hard to forget it. It was the most disastrous misrule in American history, in my opinion. I can't really compare with 1858 or with the Civil War, but Trump was a disaster who never mentioned the Sustainable Development Goals and led the country way off track. Then we've been hit by COVID-19 by Trump's failure during 2020, uh, now the hardship of a mass pandemic. So, Jay, we're way off track, but it doesn't mean you give up. It means you catch up.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a mixed message there. It's a little depressing to hear you say we're way off track. But also, I really appreciate the inspirational part of it, right? We have to do this. We can work together to do this. Do you feel like the Biden administration is going to take us in the right direction with respect to the SDGs, certainly with respect to climate change?
0: My God, what a godsend, especially compared to the nightmare of Trump and how close we came with that insurrection and with a divided country. You think about Trump, again, I don't like to, but uh, you think about Trump for four years he was saying, don't do anything about climate change, except we're going to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. One country out of 193, we're going to get out. He spent all his time in that corrupt, nasty administration, trying to promote fossil fuels and trying to do everything possible, it seems, to speed the wreckage of the earth in the name of short-term profits. So Biden is already so much better. He understands climate change. He put us back into the Paris Climate Agreement. He put the U.S. back into the World Health Organization. He put the U.S. back into COVAX, which is the multilateral facility to fund immunizations around the world. He's putting the U.S. back into the U.N. Human Rights Council. These are huge strides forward. I still am waiting to hear more about the SDGs from Washington. I don't know if they really know that the SDGs exist, quite frankly, in Washington. For four years, never mentioned. I'd go to countries all over the world, SDGs would be at the center. I'd meet with the head of state. Professor Sachs, we take the SDGs very seriously. I've never heard that in Washington. This is partly a country that is so so obsessed with itself. Then it's uh, not looking to the rest of the world.
1: You know, I think think that became clear to me when I went to graduate school and started interacting with people from all over the world. And you realize that they have a much broader worldview. And here, you know, I was this young guy in graduate school only thinking about the United States. So I, I understand. You know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the SDGs. In my travels, I've seen universities around the world actually building maybe master's degrees and graduate programs, maybe even a little undergraduate work around the SDGs. Have you
0: seen any of that? Oh, I've been trying uh, as much as I can to promote it. When the idea of the SDGs was first announced, that was back in 2012, three years before they were actually negotiated and agreed. I was advisor to Secretary General Ban Ki-moon at the United Nations, and we discussed the idea of mobilizing universities for the SDGs, knowing that they would come in due course. And so we set up the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. It now has around 1,500 member organizations, many in Canada, many in the United States, Mexico, throughout the Americas, all through Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia. It's uh, very impressive and fun to see universities taking up this cause with a great deal of excitement and energy because uh, you and I know we have the feeling there's so much knowledge that can be brought to bear to solve our problems and to address the ways to achieve the SDGs. Now, they don't always know it because universities can be inward looking themselves. More and more, they're outward-looking, but they can be inward-looking. We're going to do our research. We're going to train. That's what we're going to do. But a lot of universities realize we have a regional, a local, and a global mission. That's true for our students. It's true for our research. It's true for the fact that we are bringing together knowledge from a lot of different disciplines. I really like the Greek word for universities, panepistimio, which means all knowledge. So, this is a great idea. And I loved directing the Earth Institute at Columbia University because we had from the law school, we had from Teachers College, we had from the medical school, from school public health, from the engineering school, from uh, different faculties of arts and sciences, from Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. We had wonderful scientists and experts working across so many disciplines with a common purpose, which is let's figure out how to reduce poverty. Let's figure out how to grow more food more efficiently. Let's figure out how to decarbonize the energy system.
1: Well, we're doing a podcast called Let's Talk About Water. So why don't we do that? Let's talk a little bit about water. During your Q&A, after your talk at the People Around the World Conference here at USASC, and we'll provide a link to that on our website, you and I talked a little bit about water governance and the need for regional governance, say, around large transboundary river basins or aquifers, and a global body. Is that a model that you've seen used successfully in other areas of economic development or other SDGs?
0: Well, Jay, as you know, water is uh, life, uh, as is said, and water is pervasive in the SDGs. Uh, it's featured in SDG 6, of course, which is water for all including sanitation, sewerage, groundwater, water systems, water management, but it's part of just about every other SDG also for health, for growing food, for sustainable agriculture, for ecosystem conservation and stability, for climate change. It's, It's everywhere. But I was thinking about it. You have one of the toughest policy problems ever, And the reason is, when I look at your great research, Jay, you're talking about groundwater, something not seen, not understood, that is in crisis, that is depleting, where the people living above this unseen groundwater depend on the water for their livelihoods, for their food, for their survival, and the water is depleting. Now, I deal with a lot of problems in the SDGs, and I can tell you, even when the problem is above ground, Even when it is smack in your face, when you are cutting down trees, when you have a pandemic, when you have people hungry before your eyes, we are just bad at even handling the things we see, much less the things we don't see. And so the governance of groundwater has to be one of the toughest policy problems and challenges in the world. But you, more than anybody, know what an incredible incredible proportion of the world, 25 30% living on the groundwater, off of the groundwater, I should say above the groundwater, but not realizing all of the dangers at hand, the depletion, the challenges, and so on. So...
1: This challenge of trying to manage this invisible resource, thank you for, for highlighting that.
0: Isn't it incredible, Jay, you had to put satellites up of this exquisite sensitivity to understand what's going on under the ground. That, by the way, is so counterintuitive that people need really to understand that because the way to figure out what's under the ground is through a satellite.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing. And so that satellite that you're talking about is called GRACE. It stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. It's a it's a NASA mission. And it really functions more like a scale than it does an optical satellite. It's not like it's taking pictures or like a telescope. It's more like a scale. And so it allows us to weigh the regions of the world that are gaining or losing water mass on a monthly basis, and it has completely revealed the global nature of groundwater depletion. And that's what's driven my interest in the governance, because you know I've been watching this for 20 years, and all these aquifers are just one direction. They're just going down, 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 down with respect to their depletion. So that's what's gotten me into the governance game, and that's why I asked you about pretty obvious that you would need these regional bodies that are focused on a river basin or an aquifer, if we're talking about groundwater, and then some kind of global coordination. So, you know, we're trying to work on it. But as you know, as a faculty member, it's tough to get that kind of funding. You know, you need some kind of foundation or some sort of very open competition if it's a federal competition.
0: We need new kinds of governance for all of these challenges because political systems don't address long-term problems. They don't address science-based solutions. They don't address regional problems that cross national boundaries or global problems. So the time dimension, the knowledge dimension, the cooperative dimension all fall very far short of what we need. When it comes to water, we have the river basin challenge that the great rivers, they need regional cooperation. The Mekong with China, Vietnam, Cambodia, and so forth, very complicated. The upstream country, in this case, China, often builds dams without understanding or caring enough about the hydrology of what's going to happen downstream. Same with India and Bangladesh on the Ganges. One could go on and on around the world. So these are regional problems that reflect a combination of urgency, need, power, who's upstream, who's downstream. Then you have shared groundwater, in which case sometimes just millions of farmers have put their wells down without any restraint because you pull up what you can. One of my wonderful hydrology colleagues, Upmanu Lal, told me the story of visiting an area of groundwater depletion in northern India. And he went to the local district water commissioner and he said, do you know the water table is falling several meters? A year, actually, I think it was, uh, but it was falling very fast. He said, you're going to have depletion very soon. It's very serious. The commissioner says, I know. He says, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, well, what should we do about it? <laughs> there was no plan. It was more or less fatalistic. The water is going to go down. We have no alternative, no plan, but we have a large number of people, millions of people uh, who are depending on the wells tapping this groundwater. That is the reality that we face.
1: That was our first big paper, by the way, the paper we wrote on Northwestern India using the GRACE mission to identify groundwater depletion from space. That was the first time that I actually realized that I might be working on something important. And that was a paper that came out in 2009. And it was after that that then we started seeing these spots on our maps all over the world and they were all of the major aquifers. So India is probably in the worst shape. But I mean, the Middle East, and in particular, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Beijing, of course, California, the High Plains Aquifer in the United States, the Horny Aquifer in South America, this is happening all
0: over the world. Precisely because it's not seen. It is so easy to put out of mind. Oh, yeah, that's what they say. Well, something will come up. We don't know what. And in the meantime, this hidden process is so pernicious and so dangerous for the future.
1: In the book, you've got a really great quote from Adam Smith about capitalism being mutual communication of knowledge and of all sorts of improvements. To summarize, Smith is saying that through trade, we'll see a spread of knowledge that will eventually allow for a balance of power. It's been over 250 years since Adam Smith wrote those words. Do you think we're getting closer to finding that power
0: balance? Smith uh, wrote uh, in what you are referring to a most remarkable uh, set of observations. What he is saying at that part of the Wealth of Nations is a great uh, masterpiece. He says that the discovery of the sea routes to the Americas and to Asia are the two most significant events in the history of mankind. He's writing in 1776 about events that took place in 1492 and 1498. And it's a striking observation to say two most important events. And then he explains why. He says, because when Europe connected with the Americas by sea, and when Europe connected with Asia by sea, for the first time in thousands and thousands of years, actually, since the end of uh, the crossing of the Bering Strait, probably twelve or 13,000 years ago, all of humanity was connected. And now there was truly worldwide exchange, starting in the end of the 15th century and beginning of the 16th century. So he says, even when he was writing two and a half centuries after that, he says, these events are so momentous that their consequences still can't be foreseen. But as a great humanist, he makes a point that, he says, by nature, connecting the world should be good for everybody. We can trade with each other, we can exchange, He said, but in practice, it was a disaster for one part of the world, the native inhabitants, because they were basically overawed by the power of the Europeans, by the musket, by the conquistadores on horseback, because the Americas didn't have horses. They had been driven to extinction 10,000 years earlier. And so what happened when this connection was made, the native inhabitants, as Smith calls them, uh, succumbed. It also turns out they succumbed to old world pathogens that they hadn't been exposed to until the Europeans showed up on the Colombian voyages. And so smallpox and other old world diseases ravaged the new world populations. Well, the point uh, that your excerpt makes, Smith says, what a tragedy that what should have been for the benefit of the whole world only benefited the Europeans, in fact, at that time. But, he says, over time, there will be the spread of knowledge so that the now forlorn, conquered part of the world will rise in force to match the power of the old world. It's phenomenal. What a vision, by the way. What a humanitarian vision that he looks forward to the shared prosperity, rather than gloating in the English superiority, he says, no, no, we need every part of the world to benefit. What is happening, Jay, right now is Smith's vision. Because after all, Asia, which did not have that burst of technological advance that came to Europe or that lagged far behind it, even though Asia had been the technology leader, of humanity for so long. Asia fell far behind by the 20th century. Much of it was colonized. Much of it was conquered. Much of it was, almost all of it, was subordinate to the West. But now we see that Asia is rising in power, in economy, in technological prowess. And I say good. That is uh, what we have hoped for throughout history. This should not be a European led world or a North Atlantic led world of Europe, the United States, and Canada. This should be a true world venture of prosperity and sustainability. So I like what's happening in Asia, but I see the panic of the policy planners in Washington who think it's just the most dangerous and worst thing possible that China is catching up. It's not the worst thing possible. It is What we want to happen worldwide, we want prosperity to be shared.
1: Jeff, thanks so much for spending some very high-quality time with us today on Let's Talk About Water. We really, really appreciate
0: it. Great to see you. Thanks.
1: Jeffrey Sachs is a world-renowned economics professor, a best-selling author, an innovative educator, and a global leader in sustainable development. You can find out more about his recent book, The Ages of Globalization, and about his new book club with Jeffrey Sachs. At his website, jeffsachs.org, that's S A C H S. You can also find Jeff on Twitter at Jeff D. Sachs, on LinkedIn at Jeffrey Sachs, and on Facebook at jeffrey.sachs.165. Who knows, maybe this conversation is my gateway to an exciting path as a New York Times best selling author maybe a Jeff Sachs book club guest. Jay Famiglietti, New York Times bestselling author. That's a pretty nice ring to it. But before I keep dreaming about my elusive book, I have to tell you about all of the other Let's Talk About Water projects that are actually happening and that you can be a part of while we take a break here on the podcast until season three. We have over 15,000 US dollars up for grabs with our Let's Talk About Water Film Festival in June 2021. All we have to do is submit a water-related two-minute film to the Let's Talk About Water water film prize by April 30th. For more information and to register, just head to letstalkaboutwater.ca or find the link in the show description. Hopefully, that will keep everyone busy while patiently waiting for season three of our show. Thanks to everyone who helped put this season together, including Mark Ferguson, Laura McFarlane, Amy Hergett, Jesse Widow, Sean Ahmed, Nicky Manfredi, Stacey Dumansky, Fanny Adepa, Taron Miranda, Fred Reben, Aaron Stevens, Zoe Bolia perpick and our producer, Sean Perpic. Special thanks to our spiritual leader, Linda Lillianfeld. And make sure to keep those notifications set to hear when we're back with Season 3. Don't worry, we're still on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other quality podcasting platforms, so you can go back and listen to all the previous episodes as I actually just did a couple of weeks ago. You can also stream us on Facebook at Let's Talk About Water Podcast, or follow us on Twitter at LTAW Podcast. Until next season, my friends, we'll see you downstream. 10 minutes? We know you do, especially for thought leaders like Biff Naked, Margaret Atwood, Desmond Cole, Amanda Paris, Andre Picard, and the list goes on and on. The Conversation Piece is a new podcast from The Walrus. Subscribe today and get new perspective delivered on the Acast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play.